Struggling with today's challenging investment environment? New England Asset Management tailors their investment management services to their insurance company clients' unique needs. Learn how Neum can support mutual insurers by visiting neumgroup.com. That's N-E-A-M group.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to an all-new episode of Insurance Uncovered, NEMIC's podcast and your source for insurance news and perspective from thought leaders in the property casualty insurance industry. This week's episode is sponsored by New England Asset Management. I'm your host, Kathy Imus, and today we're uncovering the Treasury Department's new proposal to assess climate-related financial risk, plus Hurricane Ian. University of South Carolina's Professor Bob Hartwig discusses the impact of severe weather events and the fragility of the Florida insurance market. But first, in an effort to strengthen financial regulation to help fight global warming, the U.S. Treasury has proposed a new rule to collect data on climate-related risks from property casualty insurers. The Federal Insurance Office is seeking public comment on the proposal that looks to collect current and historical underwriting data on homeowners insurance. The FIO is particularly interested in whether climate change may create the potential for any major disruptions of private insurance coverage in regions of the country particularly vulnerable to climate change impacts. NAMIC Senior Vice President of Federal and Political Affairs Jimmy Grandy says FIO's request appears to be incredibly broad and will require an enormous amount of work at a time when so many individuals are still recovering from wildfires in the West and Hurricane Ian in the Southeast. Having FIO collect vast amounts of data without a clear purpose, intent, or benefit will not help the American people in their recovery or preparedness efforts. Insurers have been at the forefront of planning for and responding to the risks of climate change to policyholders and their communities and have been among the leading voices calling for greater funding for mitigation projects in communities, particularly those long neglected by federal spending, to prevent the losses from occurring in the first place. You don't need a massive data collection to know that the climate-related losses in America have been increasing in recent years. What we need are effective public policy solutions to better protect and prepare the American people for the next disaster. Once the proposal is published in the Federal Register, comments will be due in 60 days, and NAMIC will be working with members to develop appropriate feedback. A wildfire continues to burn out of control near the Washington-Oregon border, fueled by powerful winds and unseasonably hot temperatures. The Nakia Creek Fire started near Vancouver, broke containment lines this past weekend, and charred more than 2,000 acres. Nearly 3,000 homes were under evacuation as of Sunday night, and thousands more were told to get ready to flee. This year's fire season has been a long one for crews in Washington state, who have been putting in long days for several months, noting that fire season is usually over for the area in October. Authorities, meanwhile, are looking for information on people and a vehicle of interest as the investigation continues. It's now been three weeks since Hurricane Ian made landfall in Florida, and the storm is set to become the most significant natural disaster for the insurance sector in decades. 
One catastrophe modeler estimates that insured losses could reach as much as $73 billion, with the National Flood Insurance Program seeing an additional $10 billion in losses. The Federal Emergency Management Agency will provide $420 million in assistance to Floridians in the aftermath of Hurricane Ian. Those funds can be used for rental assistance, hotel stays, repair assistance, reimbursement for temporary lodging, and other forms of support. On today's Unscripted, NAMIC CEO Neil Aldrich sits down with University of South Carolina's Professor Bob Hartwig to discuss the risks of severe weather events and the fragility of the Florida insurance market. Well, as our listeners know, uh, recently Hurricane Ian has made landfall on the coast of Florida uh, about three weeks ago now as a Category 4 storm and then later hit South Carolina uh, as a Category 1. Uh, it, it, it appears as though estimates are beginning to firm up at pretty high dollar amount. We're looking at about a $70 billion-ish uh, insured loss, and those numbers have some fluctuation. I've seen numbers as low as 50 billion and as high as about 75 billion. So there's still some, you know, shaking out to do on that final number for certain uh, as we look at it. But there are lots of questions about what the impact of Hurricane Ian will be on the Florida insurance market, which had its own problems before the hurricane. And so joining me today uh, is a well-known figure in the insurance industry, South Carolina University of South Carolina professor Dr. Bob Hartwig. Uh, Bob is known to many of us in the industry uh, as uh, not only an expert on our on the issues facing the industry, but Bob's also an economist uh, and well-known figure, thought leader in the industry. So thanks for joining again today, Bob, to talk about the impact of the hurricane on the market in Florida and other places around the country. Very glad to be with you once again, Neil. Great. So let's just jump right into it here about Hurricane Ian. Uh, terrible storm. We've seen all the news reports, not only from the economic side, but loss of life. I believe I saw the second worst loss of life uh, hurricane since Katrina. Um, devastated a certain area of Florida and the Fort Myers area and Sanibel, of course. We've all seen the, the media accounts. But what, from an insurance perspective, you know, what do we see? You know, How is this going to impact the market there? What, what, kind of, what kind of economic impact are we seeing? Yeah, well, Hurricane Ian um, produced somewhere in the vicinity of, as you've already mentioned, Neil, 50 to 70 to $75 billion of insured losses. That does include NFIP losses, by the way. So it's uh, as well as losses through the Florida, uh, through, through Florida citizens. And so, and some of those losses will actually be borne by um, catastrophe bonds and other forms of insurance linked securities. So the uh, so the losses will be spread, but nevertheless, uh, virtually all the losses were in the state of Florida with a very small amount in, in South Carolina after that. So it is uh, essentially entirely a, a Florida event. You know, that, that said, um, this event uh, certainly was not unanticipated. I mean, it was a, just a matter of when, not a matter of if. Uh, as long as I've, I've been in the industry, which pretty much goes all the way back to Hurricane Andrew, uh, we were just waiting for another event like that. And, and, and Florida's been hit a number of times, and, and Ian was one of those events. Uh, other very costly events have, have hit other states as well. So will the uh, will insurers be able to absorb uh, the losses associated with Ian in Florida? Well, the answer is yes, uh, with an asterisk next to it. 
Uh, as you mentioned, we already had about a half dozen smaller insurers even prior to Ian go under as a result of uh, trial lawyers run amok in the assignment of benefits problem in that state. Uh, this will only exacerbate that problem. And uh, you've already got a you have a trial bar that is already primed uh, and chafing at the bit to sue homeowners insurers in that state. Uh, and it was uh, almost as if the trial lawyers were on the coast of Southwest Florida waving a red flag and asking the, the bull of Hurricane Ian to run ashore there uh, so so they could continue to add insult to injury. And, and so we would expect, given that, uh, that despite the enormous insured losses, there's still a significant insurance gap. Uh, we have uh, literally millions of homeowners in the state of Florida who don't have flood insurance who should have it. Uh, even in the hardest hits parts of the state, uh, Southwest Florida, only about 50% of the homeowners actually had flood insurance, despite uh, repeated warnings. And in fact, Neil, and doing a little research, I found out that in the state of Florida, that it is required uh, that insurers print in 18 point font or larger uh, that this policy does not cover flood insurance. But nevertheless, uh, people make the decision not to buy it. So uh, I would not rule out the possibility of a handful of additional smaller insurers potentially going under as a result of this. And this is going to put a big onus on the uh, on the guarantee fund uh, there. It is resulting in an explosion in growth in Florida citizens, which was already beginning uh, prior uh, to Ian. Uh, it is going to require more reinsurance resources for that state. and. Uh, and, and right now, we also have to be prepared uh, for the fact that uh, I think there are quite a few, there are a number of major insurers that are looking at their Florida book of business and looking to scale back even further in that state. And, and so uh, I think we're in for a multi-year period uh, required uh, for the healing. Uh, that's what happened after events like Katrina, Rita, Wilma back in, in 2005. It took several years. It took a uh, a change in how regulators and politicians approach the issue. Under the status quo, Neil, unfortunately, uh, uh, things will get worse before they get better. Yeah, <clears throat> I believe you're right, Bob. There's a lot there to react to. Uh, one being, we'll start with the, the before even the hurricane, the, the current problems in Florida. I have to be in Florida a couple of weeks ago, met with the governor about trying to kind of prime the pump around the notion of dealing with the just out of control litigation environment down there. One one statistic that stuck with me from that meeting, one of our national writers uh, indicated they have 2% of their national premium volume in Florida in the homeowners market. They have 55% of their litigation costs nationally in Florida. Uh, it just gives you this, and this is all before the hurricane, right? I mean, right. this is all before we get to Hurricane Ian and what we know is going to be another tidal wave of litigation that comes out of this. And so uh, I really worry about the overall impact on the, the viability of the Florida market there. But I do think this, I do think the governor is determined to take this issue on. So hopefully we'll see some reform that comes out of this. I don't think there's going to be any choice in the matter at this point in time. Well, I would totally agree. I think that uh, Governor DeSantis' hand is going to be forced here, uh, not only because of the rapid deterioration of the Florida homeowners insurance market, but um, you know, for, for political reasons, he, he does not want this hanging over his head uh, should he decide to uh, run for president. That would be um, kind of an Achilles heel. 
uh, uh, most likely if, if, if that were an issue. So, uh, so with that, um, yes, I do expect uh, you probably have a better insight than I do. Perhaps this requires another special session uh, yeah. or the Florida legislature, but it can't just deal with the insurance market per se. It's, it's got to deal with the, the, the assignment of benefits and the tort issue. Yeah. And that's a separate set of law, I think, uh, that, that is going to need to be addressed. It is. And, and the tort, I, I do think he understands that the tort issues are central to the problem here. Right. Uh, and he's very optimistic. I know there's going to be a, likely be a new Speaker of the House in Florida that also seems to be an ally on this issue. And so I believe uh, there'll be, you know, the right sort of post-election, assuming the election in Florida likely goes, you know, towards their way in terms of being reelected at the governor level and a new Speaker. Hopefully that is then the jumping off point for a special election, a special session that can deal with some of these issues. But it's Florida. We have been down this route many times before and being optimistic about potential changes there that the industry ultimately doesn't get kind of everything we need to have to make it function properly. But we'll see where it takes us this time. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, did this impact? I mean, there, there's many things here to uncover just today. Let's talk about, let's spend a minute on the Florida citizens question. Today is uh, when we're filming, when we're filming, when we're recording this, it's October the 12th. I believe this podcast is going to run in about a week. Just today, I saw the Louisiana citizens approved a 63% homeowners rate increase in Louisiana. Um, and obviously, we had seen some migration of, to citizens in Florida uh, recently in the wrong direction. We had tried to be getting making it smaller, but it had been getting larger. So just talk about the impact of those you know, markets, the way, what homeowners can expect in Florida, and then also how those, mar how that residual market mechanism may or may not function in the future after this. Right. So what you mentioned in Louisiana, a 60 plus percent increase, um, this comes in the wake of Hurricane Ida, which occurred just about exactly a year before, uh, before Ian hit Florida. So Ida hit uh, Louisiana predominantly, and that produced, uh, that was the largest event of that year, $36 billion in insured yeah. losses in a much smaller state in terms of size of its economy. Yeah, no so, doubt. so in terms of a shock, uh, it was just about as large. Uh, but you mentioned um, Florida citizens. Now, uh, this is a little bit like Groundhog Day for some of us who've been here a while, but uh, we will remember back in the wake of, of Katrina and other storms, 2004, 2005, uh, Florida citizens grew, its, its population count grew exponentially, became the largest home insurer in the state. Uh, and, um, and, uh, it, but eventually, uh, with meaningful reforms, uh, allowing rates to move to where it needs to be, uh, the Florida citizens was ultimately uh, very substantially depopulated. And uh, unfortunately, uh, looking at some of the most recent numbers, uh, Florida citizens uh, in August uh, reached uh, a population count of over a million for the first time since 2013. Uh, and so in just the two years ending the end of the fiscal year, uh, June 30th, so over the two years ending June 30th of of this year, we basically had about a 110% increase in the population count of Florida citizens from about 475,000 to about a million. Uh, that's an enormous increase. And just over the past year from 2021, uh, the increase uh, was about 
So we're talking about adding thousands and thousands of policyholders per day. And as I said earlier, that's likely to get worse before it gets better. Uh, so we're going to see uh, Florida citizens need to attract a lot more capital, uh, a lot more reinsurance. Um, there are some issues that address this in the most recent special session, uh, but that special session happened before Ian. Uh, and uh, I, I just can't, you know, quite frankly, I cannot make the math work in my head, Neil, right now in terms of what Florida needs in able to be able to attract enough capital to ensure all of these homes in the year 2023. Uh, and um, so I think what we're looking at is maybe something that we that had to be contemplated in in, uh, in the wake of the storms of 2004 and 2005 is, uh, quite frankly, Florida's probably going to have to rely uh, at least on some kind of contingent funding in the capital markets. Uh, by that, I mean potentially floating debt uh, and um, that was something that uh, was uh, in the cards uh, in the yep. wake of, uh, of, of Katrina, Rita, Wilma, and, and other yep. storms. So they're going to have to do things that, quite frankly, no private insurer would be able to do. Right. Uh, but, um, you know, so they're going to be holding together the, the, the homeowners market down there with, um, with bubble gum and shoestrings. Uh, probably for the next uh, two years or so, unless, as you mentioned, the governor is able to, through a special session, I assume sometime next year, to be able to turn things around. Uh, but, uh, you know, this, this uh, bull is, this cow, this, you know, bull is out of the barn right now, and uh, it's going to be hard to get back in. Yeah, no doubt. It's not as though, you know, we don't, as you mentioned, that at the front end, this is not unexpected. Uh, yeah. You know, and we and we and we don't seem to have any slowdown in in building even new structures in Florida. Right. The growth well, of the state you know, just continues. So, you know, that's that's apparently the uh, taboo issue that you can't talk about in Florida is that the states uh, over the past 20 years or so has added three million residents. Hundreds of thousands of homes have been constructed. There have been plenty of satellites. Uh, images showing what uh, the Fort Myers area looked like in 2022, uh, just prior to Ian, and what it looked like 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. So you could see that many of the vulnerable areas have been covered with impermeable surfaces. Uh, so you have a problem here, not only more uh, homes and structures in general being uh, put in harm's way from wind, uh, as well as storm surge, but increasing the likelihood of flood and storm surge by creating so many impermeable surfaces. So right. uh, the I think it's it's come high time that uh, that those who are in charge of, of uh, zoning uh, and permitting and land use, both at the local local and state level, in places like Florida, need to share in some of this responsibility and. The way it stands right now is, uh, you know, all the benefits of this development accrue locally, uh, but the, as an economist would say, the negative externalities of it, the costs of this, uh, wind up being borne by the citizens all across the United States. And uh, these sorts of behaviors and incentives exist everywhere, in Texas and California, Colorado, other places as well. And that's how we've got ourselves into this predicament in the United States in general, with uh, you know Florida really being the epitome. Yeah, no doubt. <clears throat> and 
I, I just don't know that we have the will as, as a country to really do much about it, but that leads us into the land use questions and the building code questions and, you know, the resiliency issues. But at the end of the day, there's still an economic reality to that development that uh, is, is troublesome to manage, no doubt. One piece of this we haven't talked about, you mentioned it earlier, the flood insurance problems that continue to plague the nation here. You know, I know FEMA, you know, they, they tried to move to risk-based pricing to some degree um, in, the, in the federal flood insurance program. I think predictably we saw actually a decline in the number of people that actually bought federal flood insurance as a result of that. Um, just talk, I mean, we're here. We just got another short-term extension of the program just recently. Uh, so just talk about those issues for a second. So the you know the NFIP has been moving in the right direction in the sense that it's trying to migrate its rates uh, to something more akin to an actuarially sound basis, and that makes a lot of sense. And yeah. um, you, me, and many others have been banging that drum for you know quite a long time. Uh, but uh, I think uh, what's being demonstrated, and this has been shown before, uh, that that uh, the demand for flood insurance is what I would call elastic. In other words. Uh, as uh, price rises, uh, you will see a fairly precipitous drop in the number of people who, who buy it. Now, I will say there's a confounding factor here. Uh, people have been willing to tolerate much, much higher real estate prices, for instance. In a place like Florida, the greater Fort Myers area, we've been seeing increases 15 to 20 percent annually for the last several years. So we're talking about adding uh, many tens of thousands of dollars to the price of a home what happens is is people say well i can afford the home i'm going to have to buy the traditional ho3 policy because the bank's going to make me do it uh that flood policy something's got to go and it's not going to be food uh so it's going to be the flood policy and so uh that that attraction of moving to a place like florida um uh, despite rising real estate prices, but uh, I, I think that what happens is, is people don't look at the entirety of the cost equation. So people understand, for instance, there's no state income tax in Florida. Uh, but if they move from just about anywhere else in the country, what they don't understand also is the fact that uh, their homeowner's insurance is probably going to increase by a factor of five to 10, if not more. And there needs to be more awareness uh, of this, and I'm all in favor of uh, requiring a disclosure, at least an estimate of what the homeowner's insurance premium and a flood insurance premium would cost. Uh, at uh, I'd like to see it on Zillow, for instance. Uh, yeah. You can see you can see exactly what the taxes are in a house. Uh, why shouldn't you be able to see what a typical insurance premium is on something like this? Uh, and, and so people need to enter into these real estate transactions eyes wide open because they clearly aren't today. Yeah, no doubt. Um, and this, this, as you mentioned, we've worked. This is something we've worked on for decades as an industry. And you know, it's it's. I don't know. It's, I'm not sure it's one step forward, two steps back. It seems like it's always steps sideways um, in terms of how we you know manage the flood insurance problem in this country but uh, i do i agree with you i think fema is is on the right path it's just it's very difficult to penetrate the consciousness here even in a place like florida where we have this exposure and it's probably 
one would assume that just general public opinion about what homeowners insurance does and doesn't cover in Florida is probably better than most places, um, just because of where the risk is. But who knows if that's true or not? But yeah, you would, you would presume. Uh, yeah. But again, I, I think at the end of the day, we're looking at a very strained family budgets when it comes to the shelter or the housing budgets, and that is really. Uh, you know, we're, we're not here to talk about inflation so much today, but uh, that is uh, one area where inflation has been very persistent, very pronounced, and it's yeah. still a problem today, even though it might be easing elsewhere. The affordability of homes. Uh, and so if something is going to get jettisoned, uh, it, the flood insurance policy is going to be one of the first things that goes overboard. Yeah, that's an excellent, excellent point, Bob. Um, Listen, we, we have covered a lot here. Uh, as always, there's plenty more to talk about. One thing I did want to want to spend just a minute on before we before we wrap it up here today, you touched on this a bit at the beginning. Uh, it's been a tough year for many insurers taking Hurricane Ian out of the equation. Um, you know, there, I'm, I've been around here long enough to remember when uh, you probably were part of our discussions around, okay, what is the size of a natural disaster that is too big? for the insurance industry to handle. And we used to talk about a $100 billion event. Remember in those days that yeah. that was kind of the threshold where here we are treating a $70 billion hurricane as something that's not terribly you know, disruptive to the industry in the national sense. It certainly is gonna be locally in Florida. Um, but so you know, talk through the sort of financial strength of the industry. How does this affect it long-term, et cetera? Right. Well, the good news is that uh, the insurance industry entered 2022 very strong, stable, sound, and secure, uh, and that's despite very high cat losses uh, about three out of the past five years, uh, the turmoil of the pandemic, and and then um, and that's a good thing because uh, what happened in 2022 is not only Ian, uh, but we've seen a, an, an enormous amount of economic turmoil continue, uh, both through accelerating inflation. Uh, wild fluctuations in the investment markets and insurers are among the largest investors in the world. Uh, both bonds and stocks have taken a big hit so far this year, at least in terms of their, their book values. And so we'll actually have to see insurers uh, recognize a lot of unrealized capital gains on their, por uh, sorry, unrealized capital losses on their portfolio in uh, 2022. Uh, does that mean they won't be able to play, uh, pay claims? Uh, no, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that. The industry maintains a, a huge uh, capital cushion, and that's exactly the way we would, we would want it to be. Um, all of that said, there's an economic reality here, and that insurers, uh, whether they are uh, stock companies or whether they mutual, uh, over the long run, they do need to uh, grow their capital, um, to maintain their capital, and uh, that's going to have to be done in part through rates, in part through uh, better underwriting, in part through expense management, and in part, hopefully, uh, if there's a silver lining in the rising interest rates, uh, through rising investment income. So, uh, so, so it is going to be kind of a rough year for insurers. I, I've, uh, I've, for many years, I've, I've predicted uh, where insurers would wind up for the year. Uh, and and certainly Ian uh, means that we're going to have a combined ratio higher than we would hope it would. What's very hard for the end of this year to predict is where we will wind up in terms of, say, net income after taxes. And the reason for that is, is uh, at the end of the year, 
uh, CEOs are going to sit down with their CFO and decide how much they're, you know, how much they're going to sell uh, in, in terms of investments, uh, maybe in some cases realizing a capital gain and, and how much of a realized loss they're going to have. That's a subjective decision they're going to have to make, and it's one that's very, very hard uh, to predict. But uh, I would expect that uh, we, we would see uh, one of the few years in which there's a, a, a net realized loss on our investment position. Uh, and that's only happened, I think, about once since the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting point as well. Well, listen, Bob, there's plenty here to talk about. We appreciate your time and joining us today. Uh, always your insights. It's a great conversation. Uh, I know the listeners will learn a lot here today on this conversation. I know you'll join us again uh, at some point in time, maybe earlier next year, to talk about how things are looking for the industry at that point in time. But as always, we're glad you joined us and appreciate your time. Very happy uh, to be here, Neil, and very glad to report that a bunch of my students will be joining mutual insurance companies when they graduate next year. That's an excellent outcome. Thank you for your influence on that. Thanks again, Bob. And that's all for this week's episode of Insurance Uncovered. A special shout out again to our sponsor, New England Asset Management. We'll be back again on November 2nd with more insurance news and perspective, along with some discussion of the upcoming midterm elections. Until next time, I'm Kathy Imus. Have a great day.